section heading Dogma and the Sacraments. Thus far, we have touched upon the origin and nature of faith. But as faith has many branches, and chief among them the Church, dogma, worship, devotions, the books which we call sacred, it concerns us to know what do the modernists teach concerning them. To begin with dogma, we have already indicated its origin and nature. Dogma is born of a sort of impulse or necessity by virtue of which the believer elaborates his thought so as to render it clearer to his own conscience and that of others. This elaboration consists entirely in the process of investigating and refining the primitive mental formula, not indeed in itself as according to any logical explanation, but according to circumstances, or vitally, as a modernist, someone less intelligibly describe it. Hence it happens that around this primitive formula, secondary formulas, as we have already indicated, gradually continue to be formed, and these subsequently grouped into one body, or one doctrinal construction, and further sanctioned by the public magisterium as responding to the common consciousness, are called dogma. Dogma is to be carefully distinguished from the speculations of theologians, which, although not alive with the life of dogma, are not without their utility as serving both to harmonize religion with science and to remove opposition between them, and to illumine and defend religion from without, and it may be even to prepare the matter for future dogma. Concerning worship, there would not be much to be said, were it not that under this head are comprised the sacraments concerning which the modernist errors are of the most serious character. For them, the sacraments are the resultant of a double impulse or need. For, as we have seen, everything in their system is explained by inner impulses or necessities. The first need is that of giving some sensible manifestation to religion. The second is that of expressing it, which could not be done without some sensible form and consecrating acts, and these are called sacraments. But for the modernists, Sacraments are bare symbols or signs, though not devoid of a certain efficacy, an efficacy, they tell us, like that of certain phrases vulgarly described as having caught the popular ear, inasmuch as they have the power of putting certain leading ideas into circulation and of making a marked impression upon the mind. What the phrases are to the ideas, that the sacraments are to the religious sense, that and nothing more. The modernists would express their mind more clearly were they to affirm that the sacraments are instituted solely to foster the faith, but this is condemned by the Council of Trent. Quote, if anyone say that these sacraments are instituted solely to foster the faith, let him be anathema. Unquote. Section heading, The Holy Scriptures. We have already touched upon the nature and origin of the sacred books. According to the principles of the modernists, they may be rightly described as a summary of experiences, not indeed of the kind that may now and again come to anybody, but those extraordinary and striking experiences which are the possession of every religion. And this is precisely what they teach about our books of the Old and New Testament. But to suit their own theories, they note with remarkable ingenuity 
that although experience is something belonging to the present, still it may draw its material in like manner from the past and the future, inasmuch as the believer by memory lives the past over again after the manner of the present and lives the future already by anticipation. This explains how it is that the historical and apocalyptic books are included among the sacred writings. God does indeed speak in these books through the medium of the believer, but according to modernist theology, only by imminence and vital permanence. We may ask, what then becomes of inspiration? Inspiration, they reply, is in no wise distinguished from that impulse which stimulates the believer to reveal the faith that is in him by words or writing, except perhaps by his vehemence. It is something like that which happens in poetical inspiration, of which it has been said, There is a God in us, and when he stirreth, he sets us afire. It is in this sense that God is said to be the origin of the inspiration of the sacred books. The modernists, moreover, affirm concerning this inspiration that there is nothing in the sacred books which is devoid of it. In this respect, some might be disposed to consider them as more orthodox than certain writers in recent times who somewhat restrict inspiration, as, for instance, in what have been put forward as so-called tacit citations. But in all this, we have mere verbal conjuring. For if we take the Bible according to the standards of agnosticism, namely, as a human work, made by men, for men, albeit the theologian is allowed to proclaim that it is divine by imminence, what room is there left in it for inspiration? The modernists assert a general inspiration of the sacred books, but they admit no inspiration in the Catholic sense. Section heading, The Church. A wider field for comment is opened when we come to what the modernist school has imagined to be the nature of the church. They begin with the supposition that the church has its birth in a double need. First, the need of the individual believer to communicate his faith to others, especially if he has had some original and special experience. And secondly, when the faith has become common to many, the need of the collectivity to form itself into a society and to guard, promote and propagate the common good. What then is the church? It is the product of the collective conscience, that is to say, of the association of individual consciences which by virtue of the principle of vital permanence depend all on one first believer, who for Catholics is Christ. Now every society needs a directing authority to guide its members towards the common end, to foster prudently the elements of cohesion, which in a religious society are doctrine and worship. Hence, the triple authority in the Catholic Church, disciplinary, dogmatic, liturgical. The nature of this authority is to be gathered from its origin and its rights and duties from its nature. In past times, it was a common error that authority came to the church from without, that is to say, directly from God. And it was then rightly held to be autocratic. But this conception has now grown obsolete. For in the same way as the church is a vital emanation of the collectivity of consciences, 
so too authority emanates vitally from the church itself. Authority, therefore, like the church, has its origin in a religious conscience, and that being so, is subject to it. Should it disown this dependence, it becomes a tyranny. For we are living in an age when a sense of liberty has reached its highest development. In the civil order, the public conscience has introduced popular government. Now there is in man only one conscience, just as there is only one life. It is for the ecclesiastical authority, therefore, to adopt a democratic form, unless it wishes to provoke and foment an intestine conflict in the consciences of mankind. The penalty of refusal is disaster. For it is madness to think that the sentiment of liberty, as it now obtains, can recede. Were it forcibly pent up and held in bonds, the more terrible would be its outburst, sweeping away at once both church and religion. Such is the situation in the minds of the modernists, and their one great anxiety is, in consequence, to find a way of conciliation between the authority of the church and the liberty of the believers. Section heading, The Relations Between Church and State. But it is not only within her own household that the church must come to terms. Besides her relations with those within, she has others with those who are outside. The church does not occupy the world all by herself. There are other societies in the world with which she must necessarily have dealings and contact. The rights and duties of the church towards civil societies must therefore be determined, and determined, of course, by her own nature, that to wit which the modernists have already described to us. The rules to be applied in this matter are clearly those which have been laid down for science and faith, though in the latter case the question turned upon the object, while in the present case we have one of ends. In the same way, then, as faith and science are alien to each other by reason of the diversity of their objects, church and state are strangers by reason of the diversity of their ends, that of the church being spiritual, while that of the state is temporal. Formerly, it was possible to subordinate the temporal to the spiritual, and to speak of some questions as mixed, conceding to the church the position of queen and mistress in all such, because the church was then regarded as having been instituted immediately by God as the author of the supernatural order. But this doctrine is today repudiated alike by philosophers and historians. The state must therefore be separated from the church and the Catholic from the citizen. Every Catholic, from the fact that he is also a citizen, has the right and the duty to work for the common good in the way he thinks best, without troubling himself about the authority of the church, without paying any heed to its wishes, its counsels, its orders, nay, even in spite of its rebukes. For the church to trace out and prescribe for the citizen any line of action on any pretext whatsoever is to be guilty of an abuse of authority, against which one is bound to protest with all one's might. Venerable brethren, the principles from which these doctrines spring have been solemnly condemned by our predecessor, Pius VI, in his apostolic constitution, Auctorem Fidei. 
section heading The Magisterium of the Church. But it is not enough for the modernist school that the state should be separated from the church. For as faith is to be subordinated to science as far as phenomenal elements are concerned, so too, in temporal matters, the church must be subject to the state. This indeed, modernists may not yet say openly, but they are forced by the logic of their position to admit it. For granted the principle that in temporal matters the state possesses the sole power, it will follow that when the believer, not satisfied with merely internal acts of religion, proceeds to external acts, such, for instance, as the reception or administration of the sacraments, these will fall under the control of the state. What will then become of ecclesiastical authority, which can only be exercised by external acts? Obviously, it will be completely under the dominion of the state. It is this inevitable consequence which urges many among liberal Protestants to reject all external worship, nay, all external religious fellowship, and leads them to advocate what they call individual religion. If the modernists have not yet openly proceeded so far, they ask the Church in the meanwhile to follow of her own accord in the direction in which they urge her, and to adapt herself to the forms of the state. Such are their ideas about disciplinary authority. But much more evil and pernicious are their opinions on doctrinal and dogmatic authority. The following is their conception of the magisterium of the Church. No religious society, they say, can be a real unit unless the religious conscience of its members be one, and also the formula which they adopt. But this double unity requires a kind of common mind whose office is to find and determine the formula that corresponds best with the common conscience. And it must have, moreover, an authority sufficient to enable it to impose on the community the formula which has been decided upon. From the combination and, as it were, fusion of these two elements, the common mind which draws up the formula and the authority which imposes it, arises, according to the modernists, the notion of the ecclesiastical magisterium. And as this magisterium springs in its last analysis from the individual consciences and possesses its mandate of public utility for their benefit, it necessarily follows that the ecclesiastical magisterium must be dependent upon them and should therefore be made to bow to the popular ideals. To prevent individual consciences from expressing freely and openly the impulses they feel, to hinder criticism from urging forward dogma in the path of its necessary evolution is not a legitimate use, but an abuse of a power given for the public weal. So too, a due method and measure must be observed in the exercise of authority. To condemn and prescribe a work without the knowledge of the author, without hearing his explanations, without discussion, is something approaching to tyranny. And here again, it's a question of finding a way of reconciling the full rights of authority on the one hand and those of liberty on the other. In the meantime, the proper course for the Catholic will be to proclaim publicly his profound respect for authority while never ceasing to follow his own judgment. 
their general direction for the church is as follows, that the ecclesiastical authority, since its end is entirely spiritual, should strip itself of that external pomp which adorns it in the eyes of the public. In this they forget that while religion is for the soul, it is not exclusively for the soul, and that the honor paid to authority is reflected back on Christ who instituted it. Section heading, The Evolution of Doctrine. To conclude this whole question of faith and its various branches, we have still to consider, venerable brethren, what the modernists have to say about the development of the one and the other. First of all, they lay down the general principle that in a living religion, everything is subject to change and must, in fact, be changed. In this way, they pass to what is practically their principal doctrine, namely evolution. To the laws of evolution, everything is subject under penalty of death, dogma, church, worship, the books we revere as sacred, even faith itself. The enunciation of this principle will not be a matter of surprise to anyone who bears in mind what the modernists have had to say about each of these subjects. Having laid down this law of evolution, the modernists themselves teach us how it operates. And first, with regard to faith. The primitive form of faith, they tell us, was rudimentary and common to all men alike, for it had its origin in human nature and human life. Vital evolution brought with it progress, not by the accretion of new and purely adventitious forms from without, but by an increasing perfusion of the religious sense into the conscience. The progress was of two kinds, negative by the elimination of all extraneous elements, such, for example, as those derived from the family or nationality, and positive by that intellectual and moral refining of man, by means of which the idea of the divine became fuller and clearer, while the religious sense became more acute. For the progress of faith, the same causes are to be assigned as those which are adduced above to explain its origin. But to them must be added those extraordinary men whom we call prophets, of whom Christ was the greatest, both because in their lives and their words there was something mysterious which faith attributed to the divinity, and because it fell to their lot to have new and original experiences, fully in harmony with the religious needs of their time. The progress of dogma is due chiefly to the fact that obstacles to the faith have to be surmounted, enemies have to be vanquished, and objections have to be refuted. Add to this a perpetual striving to penetrate ever more profoundly into those things which are contained in the mysteries of faith. Thus, putting aside other examples, it is found to have happened in the case of Christ. In him, that divine something which faith recognized in him was slowly and gradually expanded in such a way that he was at last held to be God. The chief stimulus of the evolution of worship consists in the need of accommodation to the manners and customs of peoples, as well as the need of availing itself of the value which certain acts have acquired by usage. Finally, evolution in the church itself is fed by the need of adapting itself to historical conditions and of harmonizing itself with existing forms of society. 
Such is their view with regard to each. And here, before proceeding further, we wish to draw attention to this whole theory of necessities or needs, for beyond all that we have seen, it is, as it were, the base and foundation of that famous method which they describe as historical. Although evolution is urged on by needs or necessities, yet, if controlled by these alone, it would easily overstep the boundaries of tradition, and thus, separated from its primitive vital principle, would make for ruin instead of progress. Hence, by those who study more closely the ideas of the modernists, evolution is described as a resultant from the conflict of two forces, one of them tending towards progress, the other towards conservation. The conserving force exists in the Church and is found in tradition. Tradition is represented by religious authority, and this both by right and in fact. For by right it is in the very nature of authority to protect tradition, and in fact, since authority, raised as it is above the contingencies of life, feels hardly or not at all the spurs of progress. The progressive force, on the contrary, which responds to the inner needs, lies in the individual consciences and works in them, especially in such of them as are in more close and intimate contact with life. Already we observe, venerable brethren, the introduction of that most pernicious doctrine which would make of the laity the factor of progress in the Church. Now it's by a species of covenant and compromise between these two forces of conservation and progress, that is to say, between authority and individual consciences, that changes and advances take place. The individual consciences, or some of them, act on the collective conscience, which brings pressure to bear on the depositories of authority to make terms and to keep to them. With all this in mind, one understands how it is that the modernists express astonishment when they are reprimanded or punished. What is imputed to them as a fault, they regard as a sacred duty. They understand the needs of consciences better than anyone else, since they come into closer touch with them than does the ecclesiastical authority. Nay, they embody them, so to speak, in themselves. Hence, for them to speak and to write publicly is a bounden duty. Let authority rebuke them if it pleases. They have their own conscience on their side and an intimate experience which tells them with certainty that what they deserve is not blame but praise. Then they reflect that, after all, there's no progress without a battle, and no battle without his victims, and victims they're willing to be, like the prophets and Christ himself. They have no bitterness in their hearts against the authority which uses them roughly, for, after all, they readily admit that it is only doing its duty as authority. Their sole grief is that it remains deaf to their warnings, for in this way it impedes the progress of souls. But the hour will most surely come when further delay will be impossible, for if the laws of evolution may be checked for a while, they cannot be finally evaded. And thus they go on their way, reprimands and condemnations notwithstanding, masking an incredible audacity under a mock semblance of humility. While they make a pretense of bowing their heads, their minds and hands are more boldly intent than ever on carrying out their purposes.
And this policy they follow willingly and wittingly, both because it is part of their system that authority is to be stimulated but not dethroned, and because it is necessary for them to remain within the ranks of the Church in order that they may gradually transform the collective conscience. And in saying this, they fail to perceive that they are vowing that the collective conscience is not with them and that they have no right to claim to be its interpreters. It is thus, venerable brethren, that for the modernists, whether as authors or propagandists, there is nothing stable, nothing immutable in the Church. Nor indeed are they without forerunners in their doctrines, for it was of these that our predecessor Pius IX wrote, quote, These enemies of divine revelation extol human progress to the skies, and with rash and sacrilegious daring would have it introduced into the Catholic religion as if this religion were not the work of God but of man, or some kind of philosophical discovery susceptible of perfection by human efforts. Unquote. On the subject of revelation and dogma in particular, the doctrine of the modernists offers nothing new. We find it condemned in the syllabus of Pius IX, where it is enunciated in these terms, quote, Divine revelation is imperfect and therefore subject to continual and indefinite progress, corresponding with the progress of human reason, unquote. And condemned still more solemnly in the Vatican Council, quote, The doctrine of the faith which God has revealed has not been proposed to human intelligences to be perfected by them as if it were a philosophical system, but as a divine deposit entrusted to the spouse of Christ to be faithfully guarded and infallibly interpreted. Hence also that sense of the sacred dogmas is to be perpetually retained which our Holy Mother the Church has once declared, nor is this sense ever to be abandoned on plea or pretext of a more profound comprehension of the truth. Unquote. Nor is the development of our knowledge, even concerning the faith, barred by this pronouncement. On the contrary, it is supported and maintained. For the same counsel continues, quote, Let intelligence and science and wisdom, therefore, increase and progress abundantly and vigorously in individuals and in the mass, in the believer and in the whole church, throughout the ages and the centuries, but only in his own kind, that is, according to the same dogma, the same sense, the same acceptation. Unquote. Our next section heading is The Modernist as Historian and Critic. We have studied the modernist as philosopher, believer and theologian. It now remains for us to consider him as historian, critic, apologist and reformer. Some modernists devoted to historical studies seem to be deeply anxious not to be taken for philosophers. About philosophy they profess to know nothing whatever and in this they display remarkable astuteness for they are particularly desirous not to be suspected of any prepossession in favour of philosophical theories which would lay them open to the charge of not being, as they call it, objective. And yet the truth is that their history and their criticism are saturated with their philosophy and that their historical criti critical conclusions are the natural outcome of their philosophical principles. This will be patent to anyone who reflects. 
Their first three laws are contained in those three principles of their philosophy already dealt with. The principle of agnosticism, the theorem of the transfiguration of things by faith, and that other which may be called the principle of disfiguration. Let us see what consequences flow from each of these. Agnosticism tells us that history, like science, deals entirely with phenomena, and the consequence is that God, and every intervention of God in human affairs, is to be relegated to the domain of faith as belonging to it alone. Wherefore, in things where there is combined a double element, the divine and the human, as for example in Christ, or the Church, or the sacraments, or the many other objects of the same kind, a division and separation must be made, and the human element must be left to history, while the divine will be assigned to faith. Hence we have that distinction, so current among the modernists, between the Christ of history and the Christ of faith, the Church of history and the Church of faith, the sacraments of history and the sacraments of faith, and so in similar matters. Next, we find that the human element itself, which the historian has to work on, as it appears in the documents, is to be considered as having been transfigured by faith, that is to say, raised above its historical conditions. It becomes necessary, therefore, to eliminate also the accretions which faith has added, to relegate them to faith itself and to the history of faith. Thus, when treating of Christ, the historian must set aside all that surpasses man in his natural condition, according to what psychology tells us of him, or according to what we gather from the place and period of his existence. Finally, they require, by virtue of the third principle, that even those things which are not outside the sphere of history should pass through the sieve, excluding all and relegating to faith everything which in their judgment is not in harmony with what they call the logic of facts, or not in character with the persons of whom they are predicated. Thus, they will not allow that Christ ever utter those things which do not seem to be within the capacity of the multitudes that listen to him. Hence, they delete from his real history and transfer to faith all the allegories found in his discourses. We may peradventure inquire on what principle they make these divisions. Their reply is that they argue from the character of the man, from his condition of life, from his education, from the complexness of the circumstances under which the facts took place, in short, if we understand them aright, on the principle which in the last analysis is merely subjective. Their method is to put themselves into the position and person of Christ, and then to attribute to him what they would have done under like circumstances. In this way, absolutely a priori, and acting on philosophical principles which they hold, but which they profess to ignore, they proclaim that Christ, according to what they call his real history, was not God, and never did anything divine, and that as man he did and said only what they, judging from the time in which he lived, considered that he ought to have said or done. The next section heading is Criticism and its Principles. As history takes its conclusions from philosophy, so too criticism takes its conclusions from history. The critic, on the data furnished him by the historian, 
makes two parts of all his documents. Those that remain after the triple elimination above described go to form the real history. The rest is attributed to the history of the faith, or, as it's styled, to internal history. For the modernists distinguish very carefully between these two kinds of history, and it is to be noted that they oppose the history of the faith to real history precisely as real. Thus, as we've already said, we have a twofold Christ, a real Christ and a Christ, the one of faith, who never really existed. A Christ who has lived at a given time and in a given place, and a Christ who has never lived outside the pious meditations of the believer. The Christ, for instance, whom we find in the Gospel of St. John, which, according to them, is mere meditation from beginning to end. But the dominion of philosophy over history does not end here. Given that division of which we have spoken, of the documents into two parts, the philosopher steps in again with his dogma of vital immanence and shows how everything in the history of the Church is to be explained by vital emanation. And since the cause or condition of every vital emanation whatsoever is to be found in some need or want, it follows that no fact can be regarded as antecedent to the need which produced it. Historically, the fact must be posterior to the need. What, then, does the historian in view of this principle? He goes over his documents again, whether they be contained in the sacred books or elsewhere, draws up from them his list of the particular needs of the Church, whether relating to dogma or liturgy or other matters which are found in the Church thus related, and then he hands his list over to the critic. The critic takes in hand the documents dealing with the history of faith and distributes them period by period so that they correspond exactly with the lists of needs, always guided by the principle that the narration must follow the facts as the facts follow the needs. It may at times happen that some parts of sacred scriptures, such as the epistles, themselves constitute the fact created by the need. Even so, the rule holds that the age of any document can only be determined by the age in which each need has manifested itself in the Church. Further, a distinction must be made between the beginning of a fact and its development, for what is born in one day requires time for growth. Hence, the critic must once more go over his documents, ranged as they are through the different ages, and divide them again into two parts, separating those that regard the origin of the facts from those that deal with their development, and these he must again arrange according to their periods. Then the philosopher must come in again to enjoin upon the historian the obligation of following in all his studies the precepts and laws of evolution. It is next for the historian to scrutinize his documents once more, to examine carefully the circumstances and conditions affecting the Church during the different periods, the conserving force she has put forth, the needs, both internal and external, that have stimulated her to progress, the obstacles she has had to encounter, in a word, everything that helps to determine the manner in which the laws of evolution have been fulfilled in her. This done, he finishes his work by drawing up a history of the development in its broad lines. The critic follows and fits in the rest of the documents. He sets himself to write.
the history is finished. Now we ask here, who is the author of this history? The historian? The critic? Assuredly, neither of these, but the philosopher. From beginning to end, everything in it is a priori, and an a priorism that reeks of heresy. These men are certainly to be pitied, of whom the Apostle might well say they became vain in their thoughts, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. At the same time, they excite resentment when they accuse the Church of arranging and confusing the texts after her own fashion and for the needs of her cause. In this, they are accusing the Church of something for which their own conscience plainly reproaches them. The next section heading, How the Bible is Dealt With. The result of this dismembering of the records and this partition of them throughout the centuries is naturally that the scriptures can no longer be attributed to the authors whose names they bear. The modernists have no hesitation in affirming generally that these books, and especially the Pentateuch and the first three Gospels, have been gradually formed from a primitive brief narration by additions, by interpolations of theological or allegorical interpretations, or parts introduced only for the purpose of joining different passages together. This means, to put it briefly and clearly, that in the sacred books we must admit a vital evolution, springing from and corresponding with the evolution of faith. The traces of this evolution, they tell us, are so visible in the books that one might almost write a history of it. Indeed, this history they actually do write, and with such an easy assurance that one might believe them to have seen with their own eyes the writers at work through the ages amplifying the sacred books. To aid them in this, they call to their assistance that branch of criticism which they call textual, and labor to show that such a fact or such a phase is not in its right place, adducing other arguments of the same kind. They seem, in fact, to construct it for themselves certain types of narration and discourses upon which they base their assured verdict as to whether a thing is or is not out of place. Let him who can judge how far they are qualified in this way to make such distinctions. To hear them discant of their works on the sacred books in which they have been able to discover so much that is defective, one would imagine that before them nobody had even turned over the pages of Scripture. The truth is that a whole multitude of doctors, far superior to them in genius, in erudition, in sanctity, have sifted the sacred books in every way, and so far from finding in them anything blameworthy, have thanked God more and more heartily, the more deeply they've gone into them, of his divine bounty in having vouchsafed to speak thus to men. Unfortunately, these great doctors did not enjoy the same aids to study that are possessed by the modernists, for they did not have for their rule and guide a philosophy borrowed from the negation of God and a criterion which consists of themselves. We believe, then, that we have set forth with sufficient clearness the historical method of the modernists. The philosopher leads the way, the historian follows, and then, in due order, 
come the internal and textual critics. And since it is characteristic of the primary cause to communicate its virtue to causes which are secondary, it is quite clear that the criticism with which we are concerned is not any kind of criticism, but that which is rightly called agnostic, immanentist, and evolutionist criticism. Hence, anyone who adopts it and employs it makes profession thereby of the errors contained in it and places himself in opposition to Catholic teaching. This being so, it is much a matter for surprise that it should have found acceptance to such an extent amongst certain Catholics. Two causes may be assigned for this. First, the close alliance which the historians and critics of this school have formed among themselves, independent of all differences of nationality or religion. Second, their boundless effrontery, by which, if one then makes any utterance, the others applaud him in chorus, proclaiming that science has made another step forward, while if an outsider should desire to inspect the new discovery for himself, they form a coalition against him. He who denies it is decried as one who is ignorant, while he who embraces and defends it has all their praise. In this way they entrap not a few, who did they but realize what they are doing would shrink back with horror. The domineering overbearance of those who teach the errors and the thoughtless compliance of the more shallow minds who are set to them create a corrupted atmosphere which penetrates everywhere and carries infection with it. But let us pass to the apologist. Section heading, The Modernist as Apologist. The modernist apologist depends in two ways on the philosopher. First, indirectly, inasmuch as his subject matter is history, history dictated, as we have seen, by the philosopher. And secondly, directly, inasmuch as he takes both his doctrines and his conclusions from the philosopher. Hence, that common axiom of the modernist school that in the new apologetics, controversies in religion must be determined by psychological and historical research. The modernist apologists, then, enter the arena proclaiming to the rationalists that though they are defending religion, they have no intention of employing the data of the sacred books or the histories in current use in the church and written upon the old lines, but real history composed on modern principles and according to the modern method. In all this, they assert that they are not using an argumentum ad hominem because they are really of the opinion that the truth is to be found only in this kind of history. They feel that it is not necessary for them to make profession of their own sincerity in their writings. They are already known to and praised by the rationalists as fighting under the same banner, and they not only plume themselves on these encomiums, which would only provoke disgust in a real Catholic, but use them as a counter-compensation to the reprimands of the Church. Let us see how the modernist conducts his apologetics. The aim he sets before himself is to make one who is still without faith attain that experience of the Catholic religion which, according to the system, is the sole basis of faith. There are two ways open to him, the objective and the subjective. The first of them starts from agnosticism. 
it tends to show that religion, especially the Catholic religion, is endowed with such vitality as to compel every psychologist and historian of good faith to recognize that its history hides some element of the unknown. To this end, it's necessary to prove that the Catholic religion, as it exists today, is that which was founded by Jesus Christ. That is to say, that it is nothing else than the progressive development of the germ which he brought into the world. Hence, it is imperative, first of all, to establish what this germ was. And this, the modernist claims to be able to do by the following formula. Christ announced the coming of the kingdom of God, which was to be realized within a brief lapse of time, and of which he was to become the Messiah, the divinely given founder and ruler. Then it must be shown how this germ, always imminent and permanent in the Catholic religion, has gone on slowly developing in the course of history, adapting itself successively to the different circumstances through which it has passed, borrowing from them by vital assimilation all the doctrinal, cultural, ecclesiastical forms that served its purpose, whilst, on the other hand, it surmounted all obstacles, vanquished all enemies, and survived all assaults and all combats. Anyone who well and duly considers this mass of obstacles, adversaries, attacks, combats, and the vitality and fecundity which the Church has shown throughout them all, must admit that if the laws of evolution are visible in her life, they fail to explain the whole of her history. The unknown rises forth from it and presents itself before us. Thus do they argue, not perceiving that the determination of the primitive germ is only an a priori assumption of agnostic and evolutionist philosophy, and that the germ itself has been gratuitously defined so that it may fit in with their contention. But while they endeavour, by this line of reasoning, to prove and plead for the Catholic religion, these new apologists are more than willing to grant and to recognise that there are in it many things which are repulsive. Nay, they admit openly and with ill-concealed satisfaction that they have found that even his dogma is not exempt from errors and contradictions. They add also that this is not only excusable, but, curiously enough, that it is even right and proper. In the sacred books, there are many passages referring to science or history where, according to them, manifest errors are to be found. But, they say, the subject of these books is not science or history, but only religion and morals. In them, history and science serve only as a species of covering to enable the religious and moral experiences wrapped up in them to penetrate more readily among the masses. The masses understood science and history as they are expressed in these books, and it's clear that the expression of science and history in a more perfect form would have proved not so much a help as a hindrance. Moreover, they add, the sacred books, being essentially religious, are necessarily quick with life. Now life has its own truth and its own logic, quite different from rational truth and rational logic, belonging as they do to a different order, namely, 
truth of adaptation and of proportion, both with what they call the medium in which it lives and with the end for which it lives. Finally, the modernists, losing all sense of control, go so far as to proclaim as true and legitimate whatever is explained by life. We, venerable brethren, for whom there is but one and only truth, and who hold that the sacred books, written under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, have God for their author, declare that this is equivalent to attributing to God himself the lie of utility or officious lie. And we say with St. Augustine, In an authority so high, admit but one officious lie, and there will not remain a single passage of those apparently difficult to practice or to believe, which on the same most pernicious rule may not be explained as a lie uttered by the author willfully and to serve a purpose. And thus it will come about, the Holy Doctor continues, that everybody will believe and refuse to believe what he likes or dislikes in them, namely the scriptures. But the modernists pursue their way eagerly. They grant also that certain arguments adduced in the sacred books in proof of a given doctrine, like those, for example, which are based on the prophecies, have no rational foundation to rest on. But they defend even these as artifices of preaching, which are justified by life. More than that, they are ready to admit, nay, to proclaim that Christ himself manifestly erred in determining the time when the coming of the kingdom of God was to take place. And they tell us that we must not be surprised at this, since even he himself was subject to the laws of life. After this, what is to become of the dogmas of the Church? The dogmas bristle with flagrant contradictions, but what does it matter, since apart from the fact that vital logic accepts them, they are not repugnant to symbolical truth? Are we not dealing with the infinite? And has not the infinite an infinite variety of aspects? In short, to maintain and defend these theories, they do not hesitate to declare that the noblest homage that can be paid to the infinite is to make it the object of contradictory statements. But when they justify even contradictions, what is it that they will refuse to justify? <laughs>